0: excited for this morning because uh, we have Sam gardam her speaking. So why don't you come up, welcome her up. Isn't that fun? S- Sam is, is a, so I get to speak, I get to speak a bunch here at Every Nation and Sam is for sure the person that I probably look over at the most <laughs> during while I'm speaking because she's always just like, Yay. And it's just like, I have to be careful not to look at you too much because I'm supposed to scan the crowd. It's a good speaking technique, but she's always so encouraging, so I'll do my best <laughs> this morning. Are you crying already?
1: Oh, yeah. Worship was so good. <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, let me pray for you that you can hold it together. <laughs> Father, I thank you for Sam and uh, just for the gift that she is to our family. I pray that you would give her the words to say and, um, yeah, give her confidence in you. And you, would you give us yours to listen as well? In Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead. Amen.
1: Good morning. This is really exciting for me. I'm really excited that I get to speak. And I'm doubly excited because my dad is here, and he's from Ontario. And I'm going to give him a shameless plug. He's an author, and so he's here to do book signings at Chapters. So if you want to meet my dad, he's racing out of here after the service to go downtown and promote his book at Chapters. Downtown Robson, if you want to go say hi. so, anyway, I'm really excited to speak today. I think um, what we're getting into in 1 Samuel is really exciting. Um, also, me and John have both been pretty sniffly, and so I hope that's not too distracted or distracting if I sniffle. Um, but anyway, here we go. Um, <clears throat> so, today's sermon I've titled Praise the Lord, We're Only Human. Um, and I want to really emphasize this praise the Lord. So, I didn't yell it. I thought I might yell it, but I decided not to. (laughs) Um, So it's praise the Lord. So when we were in Orlando, I got to go to the Every Nation Go Conference, which was a real privilege. Um, Pretty amazing, um, what is it, four days of just hearing some um, people around our denomination. And it's so inspiring to just be in a room of people who are like all over the planet speaking this amazing Christian message of like what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. Anyways, one of my favorite messages was this man named Pastor Sam from Nigeria. And he opened it up. If any of you guys watch the YouTube clip, he just, he gets on, they have these little movie clips introing like who he is and whatever. And he gets on the stage and the first thing he starts doing is just like, praise the Lord, we have victory. Like there's no darkness. He just is like screaming this, so animated. And it was awesome. It was so fun. I loved that that was his intro. And then we found out after the service that... Um, so we see him and we're like, man, he's so animated, right? Like, we're Canadian culture people. And, and, and then we find out that this Nigerian pastor is, like, one of the most reserved Nigerian pastors you'll find. Anyway, I thought that was pretty fun and I was like, oh, man, how do we bring some, like, Nigerian charisma to this place? But, I decided against it, and I didn't yell, praise the Lord. So we're off to a good start. Okay, so praise the Lord, we're only human. Um, Okay, so 1 Samuel 25 is what we're going to be looking at today. Um, So what's happening in uh, 1 Samuel, we've been going through it for a while, um, is we see that there's a fall of a bad king and the process of God forming a good king. We've heard about Saul now and his fall from kingship, And as we near the end of Samuel, we hear a series of stories that show us how and what makes David the good king that came to be known as the man after God's own heart. So far, throughout these stories of David, he is looking really, really godly and really good and impressive. He trusts God so immensely that when he's cornered by Saul in, like, the threat of death, he decides not to avenge himself. He decides not to kill the guy that's coming after him to kill him. Um, because of his trust in God. He's conquered Goliath. He's really looking like this pretty, perfect man. And so now we turn to page 25, or chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. And we see a different story of David. So in this story, uh, David offers his men, uh, so he has a group of men that are his, um, and he (laughs) already has Strange dynamic going on there, but he has these men. And there's this man named Nabal um, in a community in Carmel. um, And Nabal has a group of men as well. He's a wealthy man and he has a flock of sheep. And so David offers his men to go help Nabal's men to guard these sheep. And then come along this time for a festival. And during the festival, you shear the, the wool off of the sheep and depending on how nice the wool is, you get compensated accordingly. And so David offering his men to help Nabal's men was really protecting these sheep from you know, the wild animals or whatever, hurting this wool. And so when it comes time for this festival and to get compensated for the wool, um, David is like, okay, well, you know, maybe we, should be, we should get some compensation here. And so he sends his men to go and tell Nabal Um, that they want some compensation for like the work that they've done in, you know, tending this flock alongside Nabal's men. And so as David's men are telling Nabal this, asking for this piece of compensation, Nabal and all his men are also listening. And as he asks Nabal, Nabal responds quite rudely to like this group of David's men. Um, Like really rudely, so rudely that um, David's men go back to David and tell David, hey, this is how Nabal responded. He was really rude. Um, <laughs> you didn't, they didn't say that, but you can read the biblical text and it's different words. But he was like, he was really rude. And then Nabal's men there, they saw that exchange as well. And they're like freaked out at what uh, David's men are gonna tell David now. Does this make sense? Great. Um, So that as the David men go back to David, they tell David, and sure enough, David gets really pissed. And he's like, okay, put on your sandals, grab your swords, we're gonna go get them. Like that's David's instant response. And so while that's happening over here, Nabal's men tell Abigail, and Abigail is sort of this random woman that is married to Nabal, and who's quite different than Nabal as well. And so Nabal's men go and tell Abigail. Um, uh, we watch this exchange between David's men and Nabal, and we're really afraid as to how David might respond now. And so then Abigail is like, it's, the text said she acted quickly. So Abigail is this lady, so she's just like, okay, we got to go, you know, find David. So she gathers all these gifts, and she just heads out on her way. And then sure enough, her and David come, uh, they, they end up finding each other at a riverside, and this really powerful exchange goes on. So at this exchange, this is what Abigail says to David. She says, my Lord, talking to David. She refers to David as Lord in all of this passage. If you watch on the screen, every Like, it can sound a little confusing, but the lowercase L is she referring to David. The uppercase L is her referring to God. So my Lord, talking to David, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. She's referring to herself. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord." because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from a pocket of a sling. Then when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel." My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. So here Abigail is helplessly meeting David and his soldiers at a riverside prepared to take the blame from her husband Nabal and is not wanting David to miss out on all God has for him by avenging himself and is offering her enemy, him a gift, and is reminding that this intimidating man, who being David, is pretty intimidating for Abigail meeting him at a riverside, is to be secure in God. This is a shocking image. Where else do we see this kind of vulnerability? Where else do we see the innocent one ready to take the blame that's not theirs? Where else do we see someone look the threat of death in the eye like Abigail is with David, and hope for their benefit over their own. Where else do we see someone trust so immensely in the security of God to embrace even death? Abigail is profoundly demonstrating the kingdom of God that we only find ultimately in Christ. And this is the first time that we've really seen David needing saving. This is the first time we've seen David become anything less than good, this is a big moment in the formation of David, becoming the God that's or becoming the man who God has set apart. Even King David needed saving. Even he needed Christ. And so do we. <clears throat> I pray, I titled the sermon, Praise the Lord! We are only human. I hope this picture of who our Savior is leads you to praise the Lord. Jesus is so worthy of praise, he's so good, and so beyond anything we could ever muster up, even to attempt to be good enough. We are only human, and this is a reality that is highlighted through, through this story of David. I hope the past weeks have prepared us um, for just how significant this moment is that David had a need. At this point in David's journey into kingship, he really seems pretty perfect in every way. So to suddenly see him turn from this courageous, bold, and deep trusting relationship with God to seeking out revenge by killing a man and his community is a very dramatic, drastic turn. And this gives us a narrative to make sense of our own human journey. How many of us, have moments like David of being this saintly figure. That moment where you give up of yourself and you find joy, where you surrender and experience peace. A moment of victory where you see healing. A moment where you've been persecuted and rejoiced because you followed Jesus into something hard. A lot of us like David have experienced these moments of deep fulfillment through our faith in Jesus. Most of us have seen and experienced the Goliath moment of great victory Some of us, maybe even, have gotten to be so noble as to have trusted God even when threatened with death. That's a level of sainthood I've yet to experience. But for some of us, some people within our denomination even, that is a very real thing going on. They are faced with death. Um, it was really inspiring. That was one piece at the Go conference that I thought was really cool. At one point in the evening, they put up on um, a screen all of the places that it's illegal to be a Christian in, and they had everybody in the room that was um, on in ministry in one of those nations stand up. And we were sitting in a row, and then behind us was one of those nations, and they all stood up. And it was a pretty, like, special moment for me. I feel like I've always really had, a like, a, a sense of caring about you know, those groups and the Unreached People groups or whatever. Um, And being able to pray for, like, the real person that's living in that was pretty spectacular. Um, But, yeah, this is real. Like, these, there are true saints. Like, we are saints walking in Jesus' kingdom. We have been washed clean, made new, redeemed, and transformed by the blood of Christ. And we walk in victory. And then turns to chapter 25 of our lives. Then we turn the page of our life narrative from saint, and we find sinner. We find the part of us, like David, that is quick to self-protect, quick to take what wrong has been done to us, and just like David, how quickly this happens. Sinfulness is pervasive, it's all around us, and I think most of my decisions are based on self-protection, which is rooted in that assumption that if I don't take care of myself, who will? And this is what Abigail reminds David of. She says, You don't need to take this into your own hands, for you will be securely bound in the bundle of the living God. I wonder what we are chasing down, because of our lack of security in God. I wonder what out of our inclination to mistrust that we are securing God, what calling we are missing out from stepping into, because we are too busy chasing after our own self-protection. I'm particularly concerned as this relates to the middle class North American Christian. Perhaps because that is my cultural status and my own self-protective needs want to ensure I'm saved? How pervasive is this self-protective way of thinking in in me that even this desire to know how I'm doing in terms of salvation is something I I want to feel certain of? I often wonder about the peace of heart and the joy that the middle class says the experience, and mine, is merely our own efforts of self-protection making us feel good. Because when you feel bad, like people who hunger and thirst, or are stuck and without control to feel better, it makes sense to go after the middle-class lifestyle, where we can live self-protected, where we convince others and even ourselves that we are following Jesus while in truth living completely in control of our lives and without surrender. I tremble before the Lord as to whether I am following him or living a self-protected life. Because unlike David, I don't know that I do trust God enough to take care of me and the big picture. There is a lot of pain and suffering in the world. So this issue of entrusting my life and others to God is hard when the pain and suffering around me is what it is. To those middle-class North American Christians like myself, I wonder if we mistrust God on the regular more than we think or want to think, because we're too afraid of what God might call us to if we did. I wonder if in God's eyes, the last are first and the first are last, because the first are blinded to the depth of their sin, because no one calls it out in them, and that they become convinced they're good themselves, while the last are deeply aware and ashamed of it, because they can never get away from people noticing. And I think people noticing this in us is really important. I think when was the last time that someone noticed you as being lower or lesser than? When did you feel that last? I think this is of particular importance. Um, I I work, with a, I work for a nonprofit, and one of the young adults that I get to mentor and help transition from being a youth to a young adult, um, I, I was taking him to get income assistance, so to go to apply for welfare or whatever. And we're walking into this place, and, um, and the guy at the counter, we're handing in his papers to, you know, submit to get income assistance. And um, I notice, I, I always try and, like, I'm, you know, empowering these guys to be adults. So I always kind of, like, stay back until I'm needed. So anyways, I see um, my participant hand in these papers. Um, and he's shaking, he's really nervous. This doesn't feel good for him. Um, and the guy at the other end of the counter, I can see, is pretty uncomfortable too. Um, And he doesn't really know how to interact with my participant. He looks really uncomfortable. And my participant is like such a sweet guy. Like he does not need to be, I don't know, anyway. So he gives him the paper. And um, and the first question he asks my participant, my participant just goes blank. He's already just too afraid and doesn't know what to say. So then he just, you know, ushers me in. So I get up and I'm like, hey! (laughs) Classic me, just like... No, um, no sense of awkwardness, or trying to get rid of... You know, it's only awkward if you make it awkward, so I'm just trying to go right in, right? Um, and so I say, and, and so I'm like, what's the question? And then, um, and I can see, as soon as I step up there, the guy behind the counter's, like, shoulders relax and he just feels safe again. Um, and I, I wondered, like, leaving that moment, I just wondered, I was like, hmm, what does it feel like to be my participant in that moment? You know? Like, what is it? Like, I am never noticed that way. I present myself pretty good. i am never noticed to be lower or lesser than in this society. And I think that there's something going on there that's particularly important to pay attention to and that we need to be awoken to. Um, So, in Matthew 25, um, the Lord says something that is pretty intense. It's in verse, so Matthew 25, verse 44, and it says, they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the one, for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So here we see a pretty spectacular moment where Jesus himself is identifying um, with the people that often make our middle class Christian um, Culture feel pretty uncomfortable. And I think that there's something, I think there's a reason that Jesus identifies with that, that we really need to be awoken to. And I'll I'll get into that later. Um, But before um, I move into that, I, I think there's a really helpful quote by Shane Claiborne. And it says a thing that I love, it goes, The gospel will tell you, if you think you're beautiful, you're ugly. And if you think you're ugly, you're beautiful. I think that quote captures this tension we see in David so well. I wonder if a real thing that is holding us back in this affluent city is that we fail to be awoken to the depth of our sinfulness. We all think we're pretty beautiful and don't know how to receive the gospel telling us how ugly we really are, and we aren't able to be saved because of it. We continue to just live these self-protected lives, and it's a great way to live. We, the affluent, are so capable to hide our ugliness from others that we actually begin to convince ourselves that we are the good mask that we present. And this is our crisis. We are sinners. This is overwhelming, vulnerable, and terrifying until you hear God's invitation within it. So let us observe David's response to Abigail calling him out to repent. But... Before we notice David's act of turning around, I want to first highlight what perhaps was already going on in David's heart that led to his willingness to turn around or repent, that I am concerned are perhaps hindering us from being able to repent. First, let us notice the willingness of David to stop and listen to Abigail. I wonder whether the power dynamics between Abigail and David could be of particular importance to notice in the way this story goes. I wonder if the setting of the person to correct David being Abigail was intentionally not his equal nor his buddy. I wonder if this was to portray the humility of David to not ignore or bypass this woman. I wonder if we're a people quick to listen to the Abigails in our lives, The ones who we could ignore, and no one would think anything of it. The ones that we could bypass without a blink. Are the people in your life people from your economic status or your cultural background? Perhaps there's a work through getting close to people different from you that needs to take place before you're able to receive this word to turn around. Perhaps the people of sameness around you, like David's men, will only join you in your self-protection and won't stop you and turn you around. I wonder if David's humility in stopping and listening to Abigail was not already in evidence in his heart posture of openness to repent. And I'm not sure we're there yet. Perhaps we are not able to enter into this act of repentance because we lack the humility to be receptive to those God sends us to lead into repentance. Perhaps this heart posture of humility is a foundational piece before we are activated to listen to what we are being called to turn from. Perhaps because we think higher of ourselves than we care to admit, we don't even let the Abigails in our lives close enough to even give us this message to even have the opportunity to repent. There's a book by Brennan Mann entitled The Ragamuffin Gospel. And I love this title because it's a word picture that reminds me of what the Christian Gospel is. This novel speaks about how the Gospel is the good news for those who know they're messed up and need saving. Perhaps what we could be holding um, onto in the middle class. Or perhaps what, we could be hold, what could be holding the middle class back from repentance is the sin that haunts the middle class of never being awoken to the depth of their inability to be good. Perhaps our feelings of being pretty good and pretty beautiful are hindering us from hearing the messages from the Abigails in our society that would urge us to turn around. Um, so this social justice work, I get to be a little blink in it, Um, often, can feel like the hero, um, rather than seeing their own selfishness. Um, So, like, in the social justice world, you're up against seeing a lot of, you know, the problems in the world, the suffering that people are living in, the pain that's really real in people's lives. And often, you can hear a heartbeat in social justice communities to blame God for allowing it, instead of realizing that they're the problem, that they're the sinner. And I think in our communities of social justice, I think if we were able to, instead of be mad at God for letting this go on, and instead realize <clears throat> and be awoken to that we're the same as anybody else living in any kind of hardship, that our problem is that our, we have that we are we are out of relationship with God, that that's the main thing, that money isn't the main problem going on, that our relationship with God and our relationship with Jesus is the main problem and all of us, all of us are in that kind of poverty, that we are all those desperate sinners, if we could actually see that in the face of the person that we're having pity on and have that turn us around to realize that we have the exact same problem as them, rather than having pity and, and feel so horrible for them to realize that the gift of getting close to them is that they get to expose in you the same problem that you have, that you are a desperate sinner in desperate need of Jesus to save your life. middle-class Christian lifestyle often has this disingenuous look to it that presents Christianity as a belief where its people have it all together. And I'm nervous that this middle-class lifestyle lives in such controlled states of self-protection that anything that would threaten self-protection is dismissed, mocked, and ignored. I think that David stopped and gave Abigail the time to speak is a profound expression of his depth of humility. If we are ever going to repent and turn away from our selfishness, we need to first be awoken to it within ourselves. So I would ask, who are the Abigails in your life? Who is reminding you that you can, be, that you can live secure in God and not yourself and asking of you to turn around? If you don't know, ask the Lord for one. Because this following Jesus thing doesn't just affect you. It affects all of us in the same way that David walking in his calling did not just impact him, but the world, and we need you, and this isn't just for your sake, it's for our sake. I'm deeply thankful for an Abigail in my life. We'll name her Sarah. Sarah is a young adult I get to uh, mentor through my job, and a group of young adults in the program I coordinate at work on a, on a retreat. And at one point, we were all sitting in the front during a service, with quite a few rows of chairs between where our group was sitting and the rest of the young adults. So I leaned over to Sarah, and I said, why is everyone else sitting in the back? And she responded, because we're the crazies. I don't know entirely what she meant in that moment, but what I gathered was that she identified as being not the normal, regular status quo type. She said it without shame and matter-of-factly, and I chuckled and enjoyed how she embraced this identity of being not the clean-cut, cool kid type. And I thought in my head, well, these are my people. I guess we're the crazies. (laughs) Having grown up in a middle-class, high-status, clean-cut society, getting to be one of the crazies was one of the clearest moments of me being saved since probably my salvation moment at 15. Being someone that wanted to make sure I was with the accepted and the popular cool kid crowd has been a priority of mine, and getting to be first, admired, and noble, and impressive was always something I really wanted after. But suddenly, being a part of the crazies was like joining Jesus with his people, and I felt in good company, to say the least. I'm deeply grateful for that moment of of many among my young adults where I've received salvation over and over by getting close to them. They help me face my sinfulness on the regular and I'm painfully, constantly being reminded to turn around and let God be God because I am only human. These stories in 1 Samuel of David becoming king that led to him being named the man after God's own heart was not a series of stories of his victories only but also this story of repentance. A story of him turning around from a way of living that was self-assured and self-protected, and him choosing instead to live God-assured and live another way. Can I invite the band up? So in the same way that David was being formed, so are we. We're a people that are human, in need of a savior, a people wrestling through the tension of walking as both saint and sinner, and a people called to repent from our inevitable sinfulness and walk in a new way. I don't want us to miss this key moment in David's formation that enabled him to walk in his calling. I want in this time to make you eager to find out the depths of your sinfulness, that you might experience a savior that, like David, your response to being faced with your sinfulness would evoke, praise the Lord, I am only human. So I'm going to pray. Um, Lord, we praise you. I began today by wanting to emphasize your greatness because I know how impossible this journey of repentance has been for me on my own strength. But I trust your transformating power is real. I am convinced we need a Savior. And Savior, we ask for you to make clear to each one of us the ways in which we are walking in mistrust of you. Give us the Abigail to expose that to us, and that you would give us clarity of the new direction that is rooted in security in you. Oh God, that we would be a people after your own heart. In your name Jesus, amen.